This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Well, Jason Kelly, we know that our amazing executive producer saved this conversation just for me. This is going to be a Muni Bond conversation. I am so excited. And no better person than to have this than Charles Durain, who's president and chief executive officer of Durain Wealth Management, joining us on the phone from Texas. Now, Charles, it's great to have you here. We could really talk about uh, so much going on. First, though, I wanted to ask you about the resignation of Puerto Rico's governor last week. Walk me through how this changes, if any, the investment thesis around Puerto Rico bonds. Well, it changes everything. But first, let me get my disclaimer in. The information I'm talking about today comes from Bloomberg and other sources. It is not intended as investment advice. I only give investment advice to my clients. Okay, Puerto Rico's story. As you know, we've been involved in Puerto Rico. And so the governor is supposedly going to step down on um, August 2nd, the person who's supposed to take his place, who's currently the attorney general, has said, oh, she doesn't want it. So now it's like the hot potato. Um, who's going to pick it up or who's gonna, who else is going to drop it? Nobody wants it at this time. Nobody's standing up to, to take this job. And there's a lot of reasons. I mean, we're still in the middle of a bankruptcy. There's There's crowds. There's all sorts of riots and things going on there. So this is one of the situations where even though everybody says, I'd like to be the governor, I'd like to be this, no one wants this job at this time. And, and so blame them. Yeah. So what do you do as an investor here, Charles? Uh, I think you sit back and you watch. Yeah. Sometimes the best action is no action. You just watch and see if anything gets cheap. Right now, nothing has gotten cheap because people are under the impression that the worse this gets, the more the financial control board will have will get control over the situation and therefore be better managed and other things that benefit bondholders. So we'll, we'll see. You I mean, know, this, it, it could be the financial control board who gets demonstrated against next. Very, very interesting comments. And, you know, you mentioned that nothing is cheap right now, and I can sort of parlay that out into the broader Muni universe. And one way we measure that, Charles, as you very well know, is the Muni to Treasury ratio, which is well below an 80 percent average. We're down to about 74. That's the Muni yield divided by the Treasury yield. Can you buy Munis when they're so expensive? Uh, yes, you can. You have to look for That's why Bloomberg has a function called PIC. It's P-I-C-K, and it's on Bloomberg. And it enables you to put in what you're looking for, and all the dealers and anybody who's, or everybody who's anybody is on Bloomberg PIC. That's how every, this business is done. So you go on, you say what you're looking for, and guess what? Bonds show up. Because if a dealer has them, he wants you to buy them. So they're going to be listed. So the Bloomberg PIC function is, I would say, the most powerful function we have because that's the one where you literally do business off the screen. Well, we're not going to argue with you on uh, that one, Charles. All right. Uh, so as you look across, especially, the, you know, some of the 
domestic issues here. Where do you see some opportunities to buy? Well, I, I would say, first of all, there's the municipal issuers are doing stranger things than they used to before. And I want to bring this up, Texas A&M, and I'm not you know, soliciting their bonds, but they're doing a bond deal either this week or next week. And apparently they're hoping to do a large amount of it overseas. Because as you know, overseas, you have, it's like a, a negative 60 basis points. So if you have a 3% coupon here, which is a very good credit, and you know, it could be taxable, it could be non-taxable, because they, they sell them both ways, um, why wouldn't you want that credit? So now we have a, a new situation where we have what I call the unnatural buyers. You know, it's the funds, it's the individuals or your natural buyers, but your unnatural buyers are the overseas people. Can you mention three so percent? You mentioned three yeah. percent coupons, Charles, and that caught my ear. We used to all like fours and fives. Can you now, yeah. given rates are so low, buy threes? Yeah, you can buy. Uh, this place is once again. If you go to Bloomberg Pick, there's lots of places that are offering threes, some insured, some below par. So there is definitely uh, inventory out there. Uh, it's not as much as it was. And it goes very quickly, which means, you know, you have to you have to deal with somebody who has a Bloomberg. Otherwise, you're going to miss the boat on this thing. That's very important. Bloomberg has the best information and pick is the best item out there for analyzing this stuff and finding it. So, uh, yeah, pick is uh, pick is my favorite application. So, Charles, 30 and seconds to go here. What are you avoiding? What am I avoiding? Well, for right now, I'm avoiding Puerto Rico. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, there's lots of other places to look at perhaps you want to avoid. Um, I wouldn't want to have a big position in Illinois, although Illinois' 30-year bond is roughly about 3.96%, which is maybe 50% almost higher than any other place. Right. So, I mean, it looks good, but we've just been through Puerto Rico, so we are skeptical about everything. So, number one, be skeptical. Be skeptical. Also, take a look at some of the funds. Some of the funds are paying uh, very good. They've had good returns year to date. You can reinvest the income. Right. So when you get it, you reinvest it. We're going to leave it there. Always good to catch up with you. Charles Duran, President and Chief Executive Officer of Duran Wealth Management. He joins us on the phone from lovely Corpus Christi, Texas. Grease to bring us into a minute. Yeah. All about two together. I know. I know. I just love John Travolta and uh, <laughs> Olivia Newton John. Come on, it doesn't get any better than that. All right, we'll see if this is a pairing that everyone ends up liking because, as you heard from Doug, uh, market's a little split. Not surprisingly, Taylor, we often see the acquirer down and the the acquiree up. So let's get into it. Riley Griffin is here with us. She wrote the story today about this marriage of Pfizer and Mylan. Riley, great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. All right. So we've heard all the numbers. What's the takeaway here? What's the basic thing that people need to know beyond the numbers? Well, basically a year ago, about a year ago today, um, Mylan commenced a strategic review of of its business. It has undergone significant headwinds, both on the legal front, but also as the broader U.S. generics market struggles. Um, about three quarters of the stock's value has actually been lost since 2015, and it's needed a solution. And this appears to be it. Um, 
Robert Corey, the chairman and CEO Heather Bresch, have been a part of the deal-making process. Heather is set to leave as Pfizer spins out its Upjohn business for off-patent drugs and combines it with Mylan. There has been talk of a ton of drug generic pricing pressure, which is Mm -hmm. part of the reason why off-patent drugs have been under so much pressure. Outside of that, though, there is a debt problem with Mylan. On our FA function, which I know sometimes the numbers vary, Mm -hmm. generally net debt to EBIT, or net debt to EBIT, I should say, four to four, inching up to four. How much of this is a debt problem for Mylan? It's a significant problem. They've had $13 billion in long-term debt. And as many analysts and investors have said, there's not a significant part of the business they could have um, divested to pay down that debt. What this will allow them to do is to delever and to take advantage of better interest rates. And Pfizer naturally is going to burn some of that risk and be a part of that financial process. So I want to make sure I understand this. So going forward, the combined company only will get about a third of its sales from generic pills. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so where does the balance come from? So they're going to be using a, a gaining a lot of revenue from these off-patent drugs, Viagra, Xanax, Lipitor, household names, really. Mm -hmm. Um, They're also looking for growth in Asia and in China. On the earnings call today, both Pfizer and Mylan have announced their earnings um, in light of this deal. Both CEOs, excuse me, Albert Borla, the CEO of Pfizer, and the chairman, Robert Corey of Mylan, have said that Asia is the place for growth. And so they're going to take advantage of those off-patent drugs in markets that previously haven't had access to them. You talk about future places for growth. We've talked about the generics and sort of the current drugs that are on sale. Within this structure, is there a pipeline in R&D, anywhere they can look for future growth to start to reinvest? Mm-hmm. Or will it just be the generic sort of the existing drugs they already have? Well, I think that's a different question for Pfizer. Albert Borla, who took the helm in January, has outlined this new deal-making strategy, which is essentially to focus on innovative cancer therapies, vaccines. This is a play for them to get their off-patent drugs off the balance sheet and really focus on the higher margin drugs that are in the pipeline. Um, For Pfizer, I think they get broader scope and commercialization opportunities, and they have now additional drugs in that portfolio to be turning around revenue. All right. So as you look ahead, any deal of this magnitude always has sort of a ripple effect on deal making, on strategy for rivals. So looking beyond these two companies, what do we expect to see in the broader industry? In the broader industry, I think we must be thinking about what other generic drug makers are going to do. This has got to put pressure on them. This has got to put pressure on them. They've all been dealing with it a little bit differently. I think there's a big question to be had concerning the management of the new company. Mm -hmm. Robert Corey has taken on an executive chairman role, while Pfizer's Upjohn chief is going to be CEO. And seeing really how the dynamic plays out there when you merge the two is going to have significant implications. And interesting to see 
Brush sort of step aside on this. I mean, obviously, she's been a very well-known figure uh, across the drug industry. A lot more to come, I know. Riley Griffin, U.S. healthcare reporter for Bloomberg, all over the Pfizer-Mylan deal. And as we say, uh, it certainly captured a lot of attention today. And, I mean, these are very well-known drugs to our listeners. And, uh, you Lipitor, know, something. Yeah, exactly. Viagra was another one. The share price, at least for Mylan, I think, as Riley was saying, up 12%, right. needed this more than Pfizer did, I yes. think. This for is sure. a good strategy for Pfizer right. for the diversification purposes. But Cool. All right. All eyes continue to look east, as they say, to China and specifically to Hong Kong. Andy Brown here with us. He is the editorial director for Bloomberg New Economy. He's back from Hong Kong and here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Andy, as you were coming back, Robert Lighthizer and his team, including uh, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, they're headed to Beijing. Synthesize these two things. I want to talk a lot about your trip to, to Hong Kong, but obviously everything that's going on in, the Hong, in Hong Kong is a backdrop to these talks. Right. And actually, in some ways, are going to have an impact on the talks. It's yet another irritant standing in the way of an agreement. And I think an agreement in any case is pretty unlikely. So what you're seeing now is Chinese state media blaming the unrest in Hong Kong. We've had we've had eight consecutive weekends of violence in Hong Kong, blaming it all on so-called hostile foreign forces. Mm. Read the United States on black hands, you know, read CIA agents with the purpose of destabilizing the Chinese political system by, by, by preying on the vulnerability of the Chinese periphery. Hong Kong, Taiwan, Tibet, Xinjiang. So all of that is the sort of the, the if you like, the resentful backdrop to the trade talks. What's very interesting is during this period of unrest in Hong Kong over the last eight weeks, China seemed to take a back seat. They sort of stayed out of it. A lot of the focus was on Carrie Lam. Beijing had said this was Carrie Lam's decision. They sort of didn't stay involved. How much of this is now a pivot in strategy where we're hearing more from China about the Hong Kong protests? Well, what we heard over the weekend actually, in a strange way, was quite encouraging. So the Chinese are saying... Basically, this is Carrie Lam's mess. They're not putting it that way, but that's what they mean. She created this mess. She's going to have to sort it out, uh, throwing their support behind her and the Hong Kong police force. In other words, sending out a message, we're not going to come in and fix it directly. Um, and at, in the same breath, expressing support for the one country, two systems formula under which Hong Kong was handed back to China by Britain in 1997 for 50 years. Now, of course, if the unrest was to spiral out of control completely, if you were to get widespread looting, uh, risk of uh, to, 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 to human life and property, maybe, maybe the PLA would come in under that circumstance. However, you don't have one country, two systems. That's the end of right. one country. We have the generals and the political commissars calling the shots. All right. You were there. You've spent a lot of time. You lived there. You spent some of your growing up years uh, in Hong Kong as well. Take us there. What's it like on the ground? 
And also, what did you hear from the folks that, that you were interacting with, uh, many of whom you know well, and, and I know many of whom were very honest with you? Yeah, we need to understand a revolution is underway in Hong Kong. It is a cry of desperation. For so many years, Hong Kong was held up as a shining example of new economy success. This was Milton Friedman's ideal capitalist society. As a matter of fact, it is the most most unequal rich society on earth. One in five people in Hong Kong live in poverty. Rents in Hong Kong are more expensive than they are in New York, London, San Francisco, and you get half the space. Minimum wage, $5, not enough to live on. Uh, People work longer hours in Hong Kong for less than in just about any other rich society on earth. So the proximate cause of these demonstrations, which had now gone gone on for weeks, of course, was this wretched extradition law, Mm -hmm. which would have enabled China to stretch across the border, haul back to China and its politicized court system, people, uh, you know, for for trial, thus completely eroding the principle of one country, two systems. But that extradition bill just blew the lid. I mean, it just blew the lid off uh, uh, all of these other issues. Now, and now what, you, what you're left with is this simmering stew of political, economic, social frustrations by young people, particularly uh, supported by large portions of, of the population who think they have nothing to lose. When you say simmering stew, many people thought that at least getting Carrie Lam, having her resignation would help. At this point, is that not enough? Well, it may well help. And indeed, if you talk to the elites in Hong Kong, that's precisely what they'd like to see. They'd like to see the end of this extradition, not just shelved. They'd like to see the whole thing got got rid of, and they'd like Mm -hmm. to see Carrie Lam go. The problem is you now have a political structure in Hong Kong that is unworkable. Hong Kong is almost literally ungovernable. The problem with the, the Hong Kong leader, known as a chief executive, is that that person essentially is Beijing's uh, figurehead in Hong Kong, representing Beijing's interests rather than the other way around. So people in Hong Kong feel that they don't have a leader who's going up to Hong Kong, to, to Beijing, and representing them and arguing their interests. They feel disenfranchised. And it does feel like, to your exact point, Andy, that now with everything that's gone on, as you say, eight weekends in a row, protests that are covered globally and certainly felt so acutely locally as you experience, you can't unsee that. You can't unknow it, especially if you're on the ground. Even if they put someone new in, it's hard to imagine a scenario where they say, okay, the system's fine. So then what happens? Right. Well, so, I mean, what will happen, what should happen, of course, entirely different things. I mean, yeah. probably what will happen. Now, we know, for instance, we're hearing talk about they will deploy fleets of armored cars with water cannon that are going to be spraying dye and so that the government will be able to better identify the leader of these protests and, and arrest them and, and, and lock them up. You're going to get more tear gas. You're going to get more rub, rubber bullets. What should happen, and this, if you talk to the tycoons in Hong Kong, they will tell you privately what should happen right now is a massive, coherent, highly organized effort to change the Hong Kong system. So they'll say, 
Hong Kong should use its financial resources, yeah. invest in funds to put money into startups, tech startups. It needs a huge program of public housing, such as Hong Kong had, by the way, back in the 1960s and 1970s. Something like you know what Singapore has today, where about eighty percent of the population of Singapore live in public housing. Some they rent, some they buy. Um, that's the kind of program. But in order to achieve that, you need broad consensus. Yeah. You need massive mobilization. You need an efficient, an effective, and a visionary government that has has the trust not just of the business community but of society. And right. unfortunately, all of that is missing right now. It's amazing. All right. Well, what great perspective as always. Andy Brown is editorial director of Bloomberg New Economy, recently returned from Hong Kong with just some killer insights. Well, we're going to need a bigger boat. is my favorite <laughs> segment of all time. Yeah, it's a really, really compelling story, to say the least. One of the most read over the past few days and over the weekend, certainly, probably by people up at the Cape. Great white shark fever sweeps Cape Cod after a fatal attack, but it's also strangely good for business. Joel Weber is here, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. John Heckinger, senior editor for Bloomberg. He joins us on the phone from Boston. Joel, tee this up. I love that Paul, our producer, kept the music going just a little bit just longer than it needed, just exactly. to keep our anxiety wow. really, really high. Just to heighten it a bit. So, little known fact about Jaws. It's actually a business story. It is. You thought it was about a big, gigantic shark that, you know, had a taste for blood. But no, you know, keep in mind, there was this amazing quote. And if you close those beaches, we're finished. You got to keep the beaches open. Yeah. So John, who's based in Boston, sort of uh, helped conceive this idea. And all these years after Jaws basically was like, actually... This business story right now is also for real, only not the, for the same reasons as in Jaws. John, what's been going on? Businesses are definitely taking a different approach from the sort of fictional businesses in the in the movie, where they were trying to forget about the shark. They were trying to, you know, they're saying, let's close the beaches. Here, they're, they're keeping the beaches open. They're warning people. They're telling people not to go in if there are seals. And then in town, they're selling all kinds of merchandise, hats and doilies and T-shirts, um, you know, seals taste like chicken. Nice to eat you. I want All that kinds shirt. Of little puns. It's a great. It's a great shirt. And um, I took a, a really memorable cruise, a twenty-five hundred dollar uh, trip for two and a half hours to go see sharks, and it did not disappoint. We had a spotter plane, and within ten minutes, we saw our first shark. We saw a dozen of them. We had one get so close that. It kind of changed directions, just like the, just like in the movie. It, it, it splashed us. Um, I hadn't remembered what it looked like in the movie, so I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't really terrified. I was actually really thrilled. You know, John at Bloomberg, we're always trying to cover the business angle of this. So, talk to me about the companies behind these tours. These mom and pop shops have they been going at this for decades? Is this a recent phenomenon? What are we looking at? Well, I spoke to a small, a sort of a small business that started. Um, about a decade ago when the sharks just started coming back. And so he saw the potential. It's called Chatham Whites, um, selling killer apparel is there. Is there. <laughs> just one <laughs> pun after the next. And he, he says he sells about $50,000 worth of T-shirts and hats and other kinds of uh, merchandise. Um, and it's about, uh, about 5% of his business. So, you know, you had 
a lot of stores like that, which are selling selling this kind of merchandise. You had Bed Bath & Beyond, which is uh, their Christmas tree shops had sold some merchandise. In that case, um, people felt that what they were saying went a little bit too far because there had been some, there had been two two serious attacks, including a fatality. And that one of the the kitchen towels that they sold read, uh, um, "Send more tourists." The last ones were delicious. Oh, yeah. yeah. there's a little bit. Got to walk a line. Yeah, that's right. That's but, right. But John, like, I, what you what you really get to in this is that there's an environmental success story that's actually feeding all of this har har which is uh the return of the seal that's right i mean there are something like fifty thousand seals now on cape cod they used to be hunted um i think bounty hunters got five dollars a snout that was made illegal and now they've come back um and sharks used to be hunted and starting about a decade ago they've gradually come back but now we're really at a at a critical mass i mean you can go to uh beaches near Chatham or Truro and just see hundreds of seals lounging around and swimming. And, you know, it's really cute. It's fun to see, but you just don't want to be between a shark and its lunch. And so is there any worry that this will get to a point where it actually will affect how many people are showing up? Um, I mean, there's plenty of worry and there's talk now about trying to see whether laws can be changed so that there could be some calling of the of the seals and the sharks. Mm-hmm. I think that's pretty unlikely right now. They're talking about barriers, better tracking. I, I think that's a long way off. Um, the Chamber of Commerce did a, a, a series of focus groups, and what they found was that people were aware of the sharks. They were aware of the fatal attack, which was last September, but they were still planning to come. Right. And you know, I think the big issue now is going to be the uh, surfers and the boogie boarders. Something like half of the fatalities around the world um, in shark attacks are people who do board sports. Right. And I think for them it's a serious concern. All right. Well, it's a must read for sure, especially uh, during this vacation season. So many of our listeners are either there already or headed there shortly. John Pro- Heckinger. And proving yet again that everything is actually a business story. Absolutely. <laughs> Read read all about it in this week's edition of Bloomberg Business Week. John Heckinger, senior editor for Bloomberg. Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, well, now it's time for the drive to the close. Sean Cruz back with us, manager of Trader Strategy at TD Ameritrade. He joins us on the phone from the great state of New Jersey. So, Sean, what a week. This is not a quiet summer week when you think about earnings, you think about the Fed, you think about Jobs Day on Friday, and, oh, by the way, we're negotiating with China as well. How do you cut through the noise and find a signal here? 
Well, one, I think it's, the markets are going to be focused in on, on, to me, really two things. I think a lot of people are looking at Beyond Meat today just because it's a, a pretty interesting story in of itself. But I would be looking at some of the bigger companies, something like Apple, uh-huh. um, ExxonMobil on the earnings front. Um, I, I think what the Fed does, it will find out exactly what the equity market has been pricing in from the expectation of, of some sort of action from the Fed. Because I know we can look at probabilities in the fixed income market and get an idea of what the fixed income markets are pricing in. It doesn't necessarily mean that is also what the equity markets are priced in. So are they pricing in a 25 basis point cut? Are they pricing in a 50 basis point cut? Or is 25 but enough of a dovish tone out of the meeting going to be enough to keep uh, markets happy? Because I do think there's going to be the actual rate cut itself, but they're going to want to hear from the Fed and, and they're going to want to be reassured that they remain uh, a little bit more accommodative in their outlook. So I think the jobs report, depending on what we see from the Fed, will be more or less important at the end of the week. If we get a, an accommodative Fed, I think markets are going to be less focused on, on the jobs report. If the Fed cuts, but they're, they're not as uh, accommodative in their language, then you might see markets really hone in on, on the strength or weakness from the jobs report this Friday. Sean, you talked a lot about tone. And when I fold that over into earnings, what caught my eye this morning is that of the companies that have reported and issued third quarter guidance, 60% of them are revising that guidance lower. How much does it concern you that we're cutting forecasts already? I think that the, these forecast cuts were, were somewhat overdue. And I think there, we're seeing, a, uh, I think, a lot of, of the the drop in earnings and some of the, the negative surprises are from companies with elevated international exposure. And I think the reason why these companies held off as long as they could to have to come out here and cut guidance for 2019 is they really hoped we would get some sort of uh, some sort of progress um, on the, the trade uh, front in terms of what what's going on with the U.S. and China. Because if you think about it, we've heard earlier on in the year we're in the fourth quarter. We've heard we're 90 percent of the way. That's what I think a lot of these companies thought. If we are 90% of the way, maybe we'll get a little bit more clarity on trade before we're we're halfway through the year and, and we can hold off on lowering guidance. But now that it looks like we haven't really got any progress, we're sort of in that, that cycle of every day, every week we hear we're meeting the trade deal is going to forthcoming here pretty soon. The companies finally couldn't hold off anymore, and right. they are having to come out and, and cut guidance. Yeah, it is interesting you know that because I feel like last week we got at least one signal from the president that we may not really have a deal here until after the 2020 election. And so to your point, Sean, I mean, we've got to be in a situation where companies just say, all right, I got to take action. I can't wait around uh, any longer. Uh, Talk to us about the big merger today in the health pharma space, Pfizer and Mylan getting together. What do you make of that on its own? And what does it mean for maybe the broader generics business? I think it's, it shows uh, some interesting developments in the in the pharma space, and we've we've sort of heard a little bit of a change in approach from management in a lot of these pharma companies, where they've talked about making a pivot in their in how they're managing their drug portfolios. And one thing is how they're keeping that pipeline of drugs coming into market robust. Is they some of them have come out and said, look, we're going to do a lot more deal making. We're going to do a lot more M uh, M and A to get these drugs in our pipeline rather than trying to organically develop them on our own. I think this really shows that you're starting, 
the continuation of what we started to see was they were they were really getting more focused on which drugs they were putting in their portfolio, selling off drugs, discontinuing drugs. It looks like they're looking at uh, the generic business as something they, they kind of are, are pushing off to the side, and you're seeing them focus on in very specific areas that they want to, to be focused in. And I think it's something like oncology drugs is something that a lot of these companies have really started building up. But it's an interesting shift in that they're not trying to go for a diversified portfolio of drugs anymore. They're, they're more comfortable concentrating in very niche areas um, of the pharma space. Another stock that you're looking at is Chipotle, which is at another record high. It's up almost 4% today. It was just initiated by Goldman Sachs with a price target of $1,000 this morning. What do you like about Chipotle? What's, what I think is really interesting about Chipotle is they have really benefited from the the whole ride-sharing space moving into food delivery. And if you think about it, they, they've gotten through some of their own issues that they had uh, in the past in, in terms of, of issues with the brand when they had a, a lot of uh, health scares, I think. They've, they're sufficiently away from that, and they're now finding ways to partner with some of these food delivery companies to start expanding their, their sales base a little bit more. I think that's one thing to, to look at. The other piece that I, I like about Chipotle is that they're able to manage uh, cost increases and, and they're able to pass those along to consumers. And whenever you're looking at any of these, these companies in the consumer space, when they talk about pricing pressures, the companies that are able to pass that along and the, the usually the typical way you're able to pass that along is you have a strong brand behind you. Um, that helps protect margins, and in some cases they can continue to grow margin, and that's one thing that consumer-related companies have been rewarded for. If you're able to manage one and increase an expense, and if, if, even more so if you can actually pass that through, it, it really indicates the value of your brand, and, and that's something we've seen out of Chipotle. 30 seconds. Sean, small caps. Uh, Taylor had a great question <clears throat> about their performance. What do you make of small caps from here? Um, I I really think they're going to be much more tied to what we hear from the Fed because I think that the small cap space, just because it's typically over-levered to the U.S. economy, they they could benefit if the Fed does come out and become much more accommodative. if nothing else, that can help prop things up here domestically. Maybe it doesn't clear up a lot of the issues that we're seeing in terms of, of a slowdown globally. But if the Fed right. is able to prop things up here domestically, I think that can help uh, the small cap space. And they've, they've kind of had uh, some a lagging performance yeah, so far this year. For right. sure. All right, Sean Cruz, great to catch up with you, manager of Trader Strategy over at TD Ameritrade. He joins us on the phone from New Jersey. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.